My subject today is, is what is a human? What does it mean to be human? It's 80 years uh, since C.S. Lewis gave the lectures that became uh, the little book, The Abolition of Man. And I reread those lectures recently and was struck particularly with the third lecture that uh, Lewis was speaking more truthfully, I think, than he could possibly have known at the time. Uh, what Lewis was identifying in the early to mid-1940s uh, has become uh, the pressing issue of our day. And that is, I think, the question of, of anthropology. Different periods of church history raise different challenges and different questions. The Reformation, of course, which I'll be talking about with Dr. Barrett a little bit later on. The Reformation raises the question of salvation of soteriology in an acute form, of ecclesiology, of the doctrine of the church in an acute form. Our day, I think, raises the question of what it means to be a human in an acute form. And so many of the weirdnesses of our day and our generation track back to that deeper question of what does it mean to be a human being? We have all been perhaps amused, bemused, and perplexed over the last year or two when clearly very intelligent people have been asked the question, what is a woman, and have been unable to provide a coherent response, uh, which, of course, has led to much attention on the question of gender. Uh, I want to suggest in this lecture that that is the case that there is confusion about gender in the world in which we find ourselves today, but that confusion itself rests upon a deeper confusion, and that is the confusion of what it means to be a human being. And the challenge for what it means to be a human being is not simply coming from the quarter of gender theorists and progressive political theorists. It also comes from things such as artificial intelligence, when I was preparing, I prepared this lecture, or the, the, the bare bones of this lecture, some two months ago. I hadn't even heard of ChatGPT at the time. Uh, but ChatGPT raises interesting questions, does it not? About what it means to be human. Things are happening, things are changing, almost on a daily basis, that serve to render the question of what it means to be human problematic. The use of social media. The fact that most of us spend most of our time interacting with other people in a disembodied form today raises questions of what does it mean to be human in an acute way. So that's the problem. That's what I want to address today. What does it mean to be human? I want to start by making a distinction to sort of highlight where I think the problem lies. The distinction is this, and I think the distinction is that between what we are and who we are. The human condition is unique. The human condition is unique because the distinction between what we are and who we are is of critical importance to human beings in a way that it is not of critical importance to any other creature on the face of the planet. I grew up in uh, the West Country of England in a very rural context. Uh, foxes were a common phenomenon. I now live in Western Pennsylvania where we have a family of foxes that live uh, in among the trees in the woods at the bottom of our garden. 
If you place a fox, one fox, in the presence of one chicken, you have seen every fox in the presence of every chicken. There is only one outcome. The fox will kill. The fox will kill the chicken. The fox does that because the fox is a creature of instinct. What the fox is and who the fox is are really one and the same thing. There are many foxes on the face of the earth, but every single one of them will react in exactly the same way when placed in the presence of a chicken. Beavers build dams. My wife and I, for many years, owned a beloved Jack Russell Terrier. Jack Russell Terriers do crazy stuff. They never reflect upon the crazy stuff they do. Uh, they are simply crazy. Human beings, however, there's a distinction between what we are and who we are. If, I don't know many of you at all, but if after this uh, lecture, I'm... Um, hanging around and chatting to you, and I, ask, and I ask about you, I'm pretty sure you won't give me your genome or your blood group. You'll tell me about the things that are most important to you, the things you've chosen to do, or the choices you've want to make, wanted to make but have been frustrated by circumstances. To tell me you're a human being is to tell me almost nothing important about you at all. Human beings are whos, not whats, in our general experience of each other. Yes, the beaver builds a dam. Human beings choose to build this bridge in this way at this particular point over the river. Birds build nests. Human beings choose to build houses. They design the houses to meet their own personal needs. What we are and who we are very, very separable. And the who is typically more important than the what. Why does that feed into what I call the anthropological question or even the anthropological crisis of our moments? Well, I want to go back to one of the great works of literature of the early 19th century. Uh, Dr. Faustus by Goethe, the great German statesman, playwright, and poet. Many of you, if not all of you, I'm sure are familiar with the Faust legend. Faust is the doctor who is tempted by the devil, tempted by Mephistopheles to sell his soul. Well, there's an interesting encounter right at the start of Goethe's version of the Faust legend. Mephistopheles, the, the Satan figure, confronts Faust in Faust's study. And he says this to him. This is one of the temptations he presents to Faust. My dear sir, he says, you're looking at things in a conventional way. We must do better than that or the joys of life will escape us. Hang it. You have your hands and feet. You have a headpiece and a codpiece. And anything else you can enjoy is yours, isn't it? If I can afford a coach and six, isn't their energy mine? I can ride around proudly as if I had 24 legs. And it's that last couple of sentences that catch my eye as I read this. If I can afford a coach and six, isn't their energy mine? I can ride around proudly as if I had 24 legs. 
What Mephistopheles is presenting to Faris there is the temptation that I think we have succumbed to today. What is that temptation? It is the temptation of technology. Technology, I think, tempts us to do two things. It tempts us to see the world around us as raw material for our wills. And ultimately, I think that feeds into our view of ourselves. It tempts us to see ourselves as raw material or as something that is to be transcended. We might put it in the terms of my distinction here. Technology tempts us to completely detach the who from the what and leads us to believe that we can do that with success. One of the things that I did in my book on the self was trace the, the rise to dominance of expressive individualism. Many things one could say about expressive individualism. I would say at the heart of it lies this, the intuition that we are free, sovereign, individual wills. One of the responses to my book might be, yeah, but Truman, people don't read Rousseau anymore. They don't read Nietzsche. They don't read Marx. They don't read Freud how is it that expressive individualism has become the default way of thinking of ourselves? Why is it that we will tend to imagine ourselves as radically free wills that by sheer effort and sheer brilliance can assert our independence even over our own bodies? Well, I want to suggest that at the heart of answering that question is technology. And I want to spend some time in this lecture reflecting on the different ways, perhaps some of the unexpected ways, technology fuels that belief. So let's move then to some of the ways that technology reshapes what it means or reshapes how we think about what it means to be a human being. First, I gave a version of this lecture a few weeks ago and I knew that I was going to be protested in the lecture. So I, I reordered the topics in a way that I thought would completely wrong foot the protesters, and it did. Uh, they actually laughed when they realized what I'd done. Uh, I said, okay, let's start with the most controversial form of technology that has the most profound effect on what it means to be a human being. Music. Musical technology. Think about music. I hesitate to say every culture in the world because I'm not familiar with every culture in the world, but every culture with which I am familiar has historically placed great importance upon music. Music is one of the key things in communal life. The most important communal things that happen have often been marked by music. Celebrations, births, marriages, often marked by music. Death, bereavement, often marked by music of lamentation. Experiences of communal suffering, often marked by music. Think of the African-American spiritual 
tradition. Think of the Psalms. Think of the Psalms of exile. How does the Jewish community give voice to its shared grief and its shared agony? One might say, mere prose can't do it. Poetry gets you some of the way, but can't get you all of the way. Music is a way of giving expression to the deepest identities of community. Communal experiences were shared and expressed in musical form. We might say this, music arose out of and reflected, was a constitutive part of communal life. It was also of necessity an item of production. What do I mean by that? Well, think back 150, 200 years. If you'd wanted to experience music, you had to experience it as it was being produced. You had to be at the concert. You had to be part of the group. Music was something that drew people together. It reinforced the notion that no man is an island. It reinforced the notion that we stand together as a community. I am who I am in relation to others because I stand in relation of obligation and dependency to something bigger than myself. Now, I'm guessing that many of you are probably the same as me. I enjoy music all the time. Uh, occasionally, I will enjoy it communally. It's a great blessing that Grove City College has a vibrant music program. Uh, the orchestra, the traveling choir, perform. My wife and I will always try to get to live performances, live recitals if we can. I'm a bit of a classic rock guy. If I can get a classic rock concert in once a year or once every 18 months, certainly get there. I saw Rush on their farewell tour. One of the greatest evenings of my life. Two and a half, they didn't even have a support band. Two and a half hours of pure Rush. Uh, I was struck as I looked around uh, that the audience, I would say, was 80% middle-aged men. It was like, yeah, they're a middle-aged guy band. Uh, it was around about the time that I was pastoring and my associate pastor, who shared similar music taste to myself, uh, he asked me, have you, have you noticed that uh, on the, uh, the channels we listen to, uh, the commercials, the rock channels we listen to, the commercials are now for extended care facilities and hip replacements. Uh, well, that's interesting. Obviously, somebody's done some demographic study there. I do enjoy live music, but most of the time, I enjoy it by myself when I'm driving in the car. When I'm going for a run. Music now actually fulfills the exact opposite function that it used to fulfill. Music now is not something that brings us together normatively. It is something that separates us. We all have our own playlists. We all have Spotify. Uh, you know, even when I was growing up, you know, vinyl imposed a certain authority on the listener. You know, if you're listening to Pink Floyd, you've got to listen to the whole album. You know, progressive rock will never return. Concept albums are dead. Why? Because now the individual is sovereign over their consumption of music. We could put it this way. Music has moved from something that was communally produced to something that is individually consumed. And that shapes how we imagine ourselves. 
I don't have time today, but I could make the same point about dancing. Think about uh, if you've seen uh, the, the British production of Pride and Prejudice from nearly 30 years ago now. The dance scene in Pride and Prejudice. You know, Mr. Darcy only makes sense because he coordinates his moves with everybody else on the dance floor. The individual only has significance as part of the community to which he belongs. If you move forward in the history of dance, you have the development of the waltz and the foxtrot, where dancing becomes significant for the two people involved. Move to Saturday Night Fever. That's an ancient movie for most of you guys. It's hard to believe Saturday Night Fever was an incredibly controversial movie when it came out. Saturday Night Fever, John Travolta dances by himself. Dancing has ceased to be a communal activity and has become the individual displaying his wares at that point. Music, dancing, shape this notion of what it means to be human. Being human is all about me as an individual, consuming what I want and displaying what I want. Technology has made that possible. Technology. It's only because we can record music and play it back when we want that we can do that. It's changed the function of music, and I would say it shifts how we imagine what it means to be a human. Second area, think about the medical field. Some of you, I'm sure, are thinking of going on to do postgraduate studies. So my mantra to students at Grove has been, if you're interested in doing postgraduate studies in a sort of theological field, don't become a Reformation person like me. We're ten a penny. We need ethicists. We need people working on ethics. Think about the medical field. Think about how medical ethics has been transformed. Reflecting and reinforcing, I think, an understanding of what it means to be human. Medicine, I would suggest, has moved from being primarily restorative to being transformative. And ethics have sort of followed suit. Think about that. Plastic surgery. There are examples of plastic surgery throughout history. You can go back to ancient Greece and Rome and find crude examples of rhinoplasty and things like that. But plastic surgery really becomes a big thing, I think, in Britain in the years immediately after the First World War. Why? Because you have many, many young men returning from the trenches whose bodies have been destroyed but not killed by trench warfare. And plastic surgery develops as a means of trying to restore some physical dignity to those men. It's a restorative idea built upon the idea that there is, there is a normative thing, what a human being should normatively look like, and plastic surgery is an attempt to restore that. Think about how plastic surgery operates now. Cosmetic, really. Very cosmetic. Plastic surgery is not a way of me restoring how I used to look. And it does sometimes. I, I could be badly burned and have skin grafts as, a, as an attempt to restore what I used to look like. Plastic surgery, though, I would hazard a guess in this country, most of the money is generated by transcendent operations. Well, I was born with this nose that's slightly too long or slightly too short. I need it adjusted. Or I'm a bit old and I'm a bit wrinkly. I need that adjusted. Or I'm 
follically challenged. And I need that adjusted. I would say this, it's because I'm a sort of skinflint, I guess. Uh, baldness was a blessing to me. Uh, all that money I save on haircuts, my wife just pulls out the clippers, number one, takes five minutes and it's done. Uh, I, I embrace my baldness. It's cosmetic. And think about how this plays out in other areas. I can't talk about other areas here. We take too long. But think about gene editing. <clears throat> now, I was talking to a very good friend recently who has a granddaughter with Rett syndrome. And we, the issue of gene editing came up. And he made the point. He said, you know, if somebody came up with a way of adjusting genes that would eliminate Rett syndrome in the womb, he said, I, I, I would do it tomorrow if it was that simple. I would say, and I understand that, because that kind of use of gene editing would be restorative in some way. We have an idea of what human beings should be like, and they shouldn't have Rett syndrome. On the other hand, we all know the way gene editing is likely to tend. It's not going to tend towards restoring a baby or an embryo with a genetic malfunction. It's going to move towards Designer babies. Designer babies. Think about in vitro fertilization. I don't want to get into all the ethics of that, but I was uh, seeing an interview recently with a gay couple who were having uh, in vitro and then surrogacy done. And what struck me was one of, the, uh, one of the men involved said, we don't want to play God. To which my response would have been, so why are you playing him? Why are you playing him? You enter into a union that is by definition sterile. It's not a malfunction of your union that it's sterile. It is by definition a sterile union. By going through of IVF and surrogacy, you are playing God. Now we get into bigger debates of the ethics of that, but I'm just playing their own language back at them. Don't disguise your playing of God by saying you're not playing God. What does that do to what it means to be a human being? I might say, using the language of Oliver O'Donovan, the babies that result from what those men are doing are not begotten, but are made. That's interesting. We now make human beings. They're not begotten. The realities of nature, dramatically subjugated, I would say, to the politics of desire. How? Technology. Sex. Next one, sex. Much could be said. Uh, sex has always been regarded as communally significant, uh, mainly because it leads to babies. Uh, and babies have profound significance beyond the act that produces them. They have significance for the couple involved. They have significance for the community in which the couple live. Uh, we had marriage laws. Uh, we traditionally had marriage laws in the West, uh, not uh, to guarantee that couples could get together and feel good about themselves. We had marriage laws to protect children. It was important to stabilize this union in order to protect the weak and vulnerable products of the union. Now we think typically of sex as recreation. As Abigail Favale, whose book, by the way, The Genesis of Gender, should be on the shelf of every pastor. She is a Catholic feminist and gender theorist, and her book, The Genesis of Gender, is truly excellent. 
truly excellent. She says, there's, always, you know, there's an on-off switch with sexual activity in terms of fertility, and the default switch is now off. That's historically unprecedented. That transforms how we think of sex, and that transforms how we think of the significance of sex, and that transforms how we think of the relationship between men and women and the purpose of sex. Sex has become recreation. My wife and I found ourselves wandering through a town a couple of months ago and blundered into a pro-abortion uh, protest. And I was struck by one of the signs being waved around, which said, consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy. Well, 150 years ago, for 50% of those engaged in sex, consent to sex meant at least consent to the possibility of pregnancy. I know there is an asymmetry there between men and women. Why does that sign make sense today? Technology. And that's not a simple shift. When we start to think about sex as being default recreation and only accidentally reproductive, we're rethinking what it means to be a human being. And that's only possible in a technological society. Think about pornography. Many things we could say about pornography. The obvious one is it objectifies the other. The other becomes means rather than an end. We look at other human beings as that which we can get out of them rather than that which we give to them. It dehumanizes all of those involved, both those on the screen and those watching. And if the statistics on regular pornography use are to be believed, that's an awful lot of bad philosophy of what it means to be a human being being consumed by an awful lot of people on a remarkably frightening and regular basis. It also turns desire from desire for a particular person to desire for mere sexual gratification. Think about that. Uh, I bring this out a couple of ways in class. I say to the students, you know, I'm at a Christian liberal arts college. That, you know, I teach final year students. That a lot of them, you know, they graduate on the Saturday and they get married on the Monday. That's how it goes at Christian liberal arts colleges. And I ask the students, you know, I'll pick on an engaged couple in class and I'll say, you know, Dave, if on your wedding day, uh, you know, the music changes and that's the moment when Samantha's come in and you turn around to look at Samantha because you want to see the woman you love uh, on the, the, the most important day of her life. And it isn't Samantha, but it's some equally beautiful and attractive girl called uh, Julia. Uh, do you go through with the wedding? And uh, one of them said recently, probably not. Thankfully, his, his fiance was not in the room at the time. Uh, I, 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 I paused and I said, would you like to reconsider the, the word probably in that sentence? Uh, he immediately did so. Uh, but the, the point, of course, is the desires for a particular person, or should be for a particular person. The desire is for a subject, not an object. What does pornography teach? It teaches us that our sexual desire should really be for an object. Roger Scruton talks about the distinction between faces and bodies. He said, properly ordered sexual desire should be for a face, a person. Pornography reorients that desire towards 
a body. On the wedding day, only the face will do. In pornography, any body will do. Think about that, how that reshapes how we think about that most important of human acts and human relationships. And that's technologically fueled and enabled. Think then also about transhumanism. One of the things I miss in my book, I think, I was talking about this earlier to some students. Uh, I treat the T, transgenderism, very much as part of the LGBTQ uh, political movement. That's absolutely correct on a political level. Philosophically, though, more important for transgenderism is transhumanism. Transhumanism is a term used to refer to a number of philosophies that really share this in common, that the limitations of the human body are to be transcended through the use of technology. Sometimes it manifests itself as a desire to live forever. Other times it manifests itself as a desire to completely reinvent oneself. Biology is to be overcome by the use of technology. We've seen this in various strands. We see it in cyborg feminism. Shulamith Firestone in the 1970s, Donna Haraway in the 1980s, Sophie Lewis is the latest articulator of, uh, of this idea. The idea that biological connections are mere social constructs that really serve the patriarchy. And that actually biology is to be overcome through the use of technology. In a technological world, the temptation will be towards seeing bodily functions as problems and not as the actual realization of the self. The claim, for example, that uh, babies in the womb are parasites, quite a common one. Uh, I'm not sure that any woman would actually ever really believe that, but it's certainly used in the political rhetoric. That claim denies any significance to biological connection. It can only be done in a technological world where the parasite can be dealt with in a relatively clean, efficient, and effective way manner. The disembodiment of most of the ways we engage with most people most of the time plays into this. You may not be an advocate of transgender ideology, but if most of your interaction with other human beings takes place in the disembodied sphere, then you are downplaying the importance of the body and leaving yourself vulnerable to precisely the same philosophical assumptions that transgenderism rests upon. It's interesting, I was struck. This is not a comment about the rightness or wrongness of the way churches approached COVID. But I would say the thing that most disturbed me uh, among Protestant churches relative to COVID lockdowns was not that churches went online. We can argue the merits and the demerits of that. It was the fact that an awful lot of people didn't think it was a big deal. I wish that those who saw it as a necessity, yet saw it as a deeply regrettable necessity that was depriving us of something important, embodied connection with other human beings 
in the worship service. And the fact that many Protestants have not gone back to church, but have found online church a perfectly acceptable replacement for real church, should be a cause of concern, I think. It tracks back to technology is tempting us to believe that embodied interaction is not important. Intuitively, if we think about it for a moment, we know that's wrong. You know, on your deathbed, you don't want your pastor, if possible, connecting with you by teams. You want him sitting by your bedside, praying with you. Mary Harrington, in her wonderful new book, Feminism Against Progress, says this, when we socialize in disembodied ways online, even as biotech promises total mastery of the bodies we're trying to leave behind, these efforts to abolish sex dimorphism in the name of the human will end up abolishing what makes us human, men and women, leaving something profoundly post-human in its place. In this vision, our bodies cease to be interdependent, sexed, and sentient, and are instead reassembled as a kind of, and I love this phrase she uses, uh, although it's a slightly tasteless one, I guess, are instead reassembled as a kind of meat Lego, built of parts that can be reassembled at will. Mary Harrington's not a Christian. She's a feminist. But she gets it. She gets the importance of the loss of body. Interesting thing is, I was saying, again, I was saying earlier on, Mary Harrington's watershed moment, and she was a, she's a sort of secular Rosaria Butterfield in terms of how uh, her thinking has shifted. Her thinking was not shifted by an argument. Her thinking was shifted by having a baby. And she said it became impossible after she'd had her baby to think of her baby as a different body from herself. The biological tie was so strong. And her queer theory gave her no way of explaining or giving a rationale for that strong instinct. All of these things then, music, medicine, sex, transhumanism, have shifted in how we think about them. Representing, constituting, and to some extent driving, I think, shifts in what it means to be a human being. And technology empowers them all. Technology has made them all possible. We live in a world where technology tricks us into thinking that our individual wills are who we really are. And in doing so, they strive for definitive detachment of the question of who we are from what we are. The reason why people find it hard to define what is a woman is because they don't want to allow the body any authority. When I interviewed Abigail Favali a few weeks ago, I started the interview by saying, okay, Abby, Abigail, I'm going to ask you a question that seems to be perplexing some of the greatest minds of our age. What is a woman? She didn't take a breath in answering the question. I'm summarizing here, but she essentially said, a woman is a person whose body is normatively structured towards gestation. The word normative there is important because she wants to take account of women who are sterile, barren, have had hysterectomies. They're still women. But normatively, the female body is structured towards gestation. 
Once you refuse to allow that that bodily function is significant for identity, once you regard that bodily function as oppressive, which is what technology allows us to do, then the question becomes complicated. The solution then, well, I was, I'm a historian. I tell you where the problems come from. I have no idea what the solutions are. But I'm going to make a stab here. What might be elements of a solution? I think one thing we have to do is reflect upon and reassert the importance of our bodies. We have to do that as Christians. I am very grateful that Roman Catholicism has produced a body of thinking on the body. Protestants need to be doing the same. Much of what Roman Catholicism has done relative to the body, uh, we can plunder for the Protestant cause. And I'm grateful for that. Very grateful for that. But we need to be thinking about it ourselves. And I think Protestantism has a tendency to disembodiment because of our appropriate emphasis upon the proclamation of the word. If you're a Catholic, you have to take the mass. If you're a Protestant, well, you can get the word online, can't you? You can still hear the word. Uh, I think we need to think more about the importance of embodiment, even in preaching now. Little parallel when my kids were small, my wife and I bought one of those. They were then video cameras to video their school events. I think we used it for about six months, and then we abandoned it because we suddenly realized that when we were videoing the event, it was as if we weren't actually there. It was as if the event was somehow mediated to us in a way that meant we were not there. We were almost watching it as if we were watching it on television rather than being there. And we all know there's a difference between watching a play on television and watching a play at the theater. There's a difference between being in church and hearing the word proclaimed and watching the word proclaimed on TV or online. It's the difference between being a participant and being a spectator. I haven't fully fleshed out how we would articulate that, but I think intuitively we know that is the case. We need to regain the significance of the body. We need to remember that we are our bodies. Our bodies are not instruments that allow us to achieve ourselves or become ourselves. Our bodies are ourselves. We need to realize then as well that bodies fly absolutely in the face of that guiding modern myth that Rousseau so brilliantly articulates when he says, man is born free and everywhere is in chains. I have a one-year-old granddaughter. She is not free. She is utterly dependent upon her parents. Why? Because she's a body. She is a weak, helpless body that requires stronger, mature bodies to provide for her needs. And human beings, ironically, are among the least born free in the entire universe. Hamsters, antisocial creatures. If there's such a thing as reincarnation, I feel I'm a reincarnated hamster. I'm a bit antisocial. Uh, has to separate hamsters at 21 days because they want to live on their own at that point. They'll get together to mate and that'll be it. They live on their own. They are independent at 21 days. Human beings, if the newspapers are believed, they're struggling to be independent at 21 years today. They're still dependent. The body teaches us that to be human is to be dependent and to be obliged. We never live in pure independency, do we? We always have people who are dependent to some extent upon us or upon who we ourselves are 
dependent. Sexual ethics should be rooted in an anthropology of embodiment. I was interviewed by Andrew Sullivan, the gay journalist, recently on his podcast, and he went hard after me on the gay issue, and ultimately I played the sort of, look, Andrew, bodies are meant to be joined together sexually in certain ways and not in other ways. He referred to, oh, you mean the wrong whole argument. Sorry for the distasteful sort of reference. I said, yeah, basically. That was the one point he kind of conceded in the whole discussion. Yeah, he sort of said, that, that is a, 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 a decent argument. We need to think about sexual ethics rooted in our embodiment. Sex is not just recreation. It's not just a private activity either. If you think of it as an embodied activity, it's an, uh, an activity that has profound implications for the community as a whole. So in conclusion, the temptation of Mephistopheles is strong. But it doesn't just involve selling our souls. I think the technological revolution involves selling our bodies as well. And in selling soul and body, selling our very souls, our very selves. Thank you for listening so patiently.